Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's LearnTrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's LearnTrueHistory.com. LearnTrueHistory.com. Com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 64. And today I want to talk about a topic that um, I've covered uh, in my free course at freehistorycourse.com on the 10 best presidents and the 10 worst presidents. I'm going to talk about Grover Cleveland as one of the greatest presidents in American history, and there's a reason for that. But before I do that, I want to remind everyone uh, to please uh, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. If you do like this podcast, share it around on social media. Uh, Also, uh, if you go to my homepage, brianmcclanahan.com, and you go to the top there, you can subscribe to my email list, and I will give you a free ebook and a free audiobook of Forgotten Founders. And so if you head on out there and do that, if you haven't done it yet, it's a good idea. You get the free book, free audiobook. And plus, you're going to get an email from me every now and then. One of my pledges uh, after this next week is to email at least once a week, if not twice a week, so that uh, those on the list can keep up with certain things that I'm doing, and uh, I can keep in touch with you. Uh, I will be taking a break. This is the last podcast till March 21st. I will be off next week, so this will be the, the uh, be a week before you hear me again, a little over a week, so um, you can catch up on all the past episodes. This is episode 64, so there's a lot there, uh, and hope you enjoy those podcasts. So uh, the reason I want to talk about uh, Grover Cleveland today is because, of course, we just had Trump's speech uh, where he addressed Congress and outlined several ideas that he thought, uh, or several proposals that he thought should be implemented by the Congress. And this speech then took a backseat because Trump came on and said that uh, his uh, Trump Tower was being bugged and uh, during the campaign, and so uh, he was very upset about that, and uh, that at now has occupied center stage in the uh, media cycle. Uh, but before that, of course, we had this, this speech, and uh, Trump made it a point to uh, say that uh, you know he wanted to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure and he wants to expand uh, the military and uh, all these other things. You know, look at the health care bill and lowering taxes. And Trump, of course, has taken a position that's that's very similar to what every other modern president has done, and that's acting as chief legislator. Uh, he has said that he has his bill, or these are his recommendations for the health care bill, this is his tax bill, this is his infrastructure bill, et cetera, et cetera. So Trump uh, is, is being a modern president. Uh, in, in my book, Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, I talked about this. Uh, and this is something that um, I knew would happen uh, when, when Trump was elected. It didn't matter if Trump was going to be elected or Clinton was going to be elected. Uh, they were going to take this position. Now, one thing I did say about Trump is that uh, it was rather refreshing that he did not have a stated position on several issues. It was more, you know, I'm going to look into that. Uh, and 
uh, he still, I think at times, takes that position. He's, he's going to kind of let Congress do its thing. And, and one thing he is trying to do, it's the art of the deal, quote-unquote, kind of position, where he wants to kind of take a step back and uh, let the parties involved in Congress come up with a plan, then he's going to get involved and try to, and try to work out a deal. I, I still think that that's, you know, that's Trump's uh, M.O., and it's not what the founding generation considered to be uh, the ideal role for the president, uh, though I think, you know, going back and reading uh, you know, John C. Calhoun, uh, who's Calhoun's birthday is March 18th, the same day as Grover Cleveland, which is why I'm do- I've already done a podcast on Calhoun, so I'm doing one on Cleveland because his birthday is next week, and I won't have time to do it next week. Uh, but one thing Calhoun did talk about is that you know the legislative power the president did have, because uh, the veto powers included in Article 1, the president did have a legislative role because of the veto. And so perhaps that uh, allowed him to wade into that legislative business. Now, you did not see that very often, really until the uh, time period after the Civil War, quote-unquote Civil War, and you saw it more uh, predominantly in the executives following uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And Roosevelt definitely considered himself to be a legislator-in-chief, but more Woodrow Wilson than anyone else, and that started the process by which we have today where the president goes out and believes that they are the legislator-in-chief, and they're going to write legislation and propose legislation, do all the things that was never designed to happen. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a terrible fault of the executive branch, and it's one that uh, I'm, I'm highly critical of. Uh, and Trump is essentially following suit. I, I don't think, because of the way the executive has, has been designed now, that there's ever going to be a president that steps in and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to let the Congress do everything, and I'm just going to take a back seat. It's not going to happen. Uh, so that uh, Pandora's box has already been opened, and it won't be closed. Uh, the president, unless the, unless the Congress does something to curtail the powers of the president, uh, this is what we have, and this is what we're going to continue to have in America. We have executive government. Uh, or unless the uh, people of the states decide that they're going to try to amend the Constitution and curtail the power of the executive, but that's not... Uh, I don't see it happening in the foreseeable future. Too many people like executive government on both sides. So uh, it's not something that I think is going to uh, dramatically change. Now, that said, I think through education, through this podcast, through the free history course, through uh, you know my, my book, Nine Presidents, through uh, LearnTrue, T-R-U-E, history.com, uh, there is a, a, a plethora of material out there uh, that you can get educated by. And, of course, that can change the way people think about things, and maybe they put pressure on their elected officials to do things differently. That could happen. And so for young people that listen to this podcast, that is your charge for the future, moving forward. Put pressure on these elected officials and use the examples that you're given in these various uh, mediums, whether it's you know this or, that, or uh, the courses that we have at Learn True History, or whether it's my book, or other books on the subject. People have been writing about executive abuse for years, for decades, and yet the president still continues to gather more and more power. So it's my hope that uh, perhaps that tide can shift. I will say that I've been encouraged by a lot of things in the, in the last, uh, say, 10 years. Uh, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen so much interest 
for example, in uh, this idea of decentralization, whether it's nullification or secession or uh, you know, real federalism, all of these different ideas have been uh, you know, germinating out there, and now they're growing. They're, they're sprouting. They're producing, they're producing uh, people that believe in these things, and that's great. You know, or 20 years ago, you wouldn't have seen this. You, there were very few people even suggesting these things, and now it's all over the place. So that's great. Uh, people are thinking about what the states can do, what the people of the states can do to try to arrest this federal leviathan. And that's exactly what needs to happen. One thing about that, before I get to Grover Cleveland, of course, it's been said that uh, Switzerland is the ideal place to live. Well, if you look at Switzerland, it is a, uh, a, a model of decentralization. They don't have a singular executive. Uh, the uh, essential, essentially, the states, what we would consider states, and Switzerland have their own political culture, and it's very decentralized. Uh, and Switzerland's a wonderful place. The economy's great, small little state. The population's about right. They have a lot of uh, participation in government. This is exactly what we need in the United States. It's the things I've talked about with Hume's ideal republic or local self-government or small is beautiful. All of these, all these things, you know, think locally, act locally. This is all about decentralization, and Switzerland has all of those things going for it. And so people love to live in Switzerland. Uh, and it's, it's a peaceful place. You know, the thing that the United States ranked highest on in these, ranking, in these uh, evaluations of the ideal places to live was the largest military in the world. Now, how is that beneficial to individual liberty and freedom or, uh, you know, a frugal government? Things that we talk about all the time, but if you're going to ex- expand military spending— uh, you're going to be in a situation where you have the largest military in the world. We uh, outspend every other country in the world se- combined, uh, you know, several of them, on our military. So uh, these are large powers. I'm not just talking about little, little countries. Uh, this is you know, Russia and China. Uh, so the idea that the United States um, is a free place or the ideal place to live, I think, is shot down over and over again in these rankings. And generally, places like Switzerland, which are very decentralized, come out on top. So how does that bridge into Grover Cleveland? Well, you had a president, in my estimation, the last conservative president, the last president to faithfully uphold his oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and he was interested in a federal republic where the president was safeguarding the Constitution against encroachments by the general government itself. And so, you know, going through Grover Cleveland, I mean, it's, it's so refreshing to read what Grover Cleveland had to say about many issues. Of course, um, you know, Cleveland uh, is from New York. And, and during the presidential cycle, I suggested that Donald Trump could learn something from Grover Cleveland. You know, Grover Cleveland promised uh, in 1884 to go into Washington and clean up the corruption uh, to ensure that the corruption was rooted out. And what we've seen with the Trump administration is that you have a tremendous amount of corruption in Washington, D.C. Uh, you have all these Obama holdovers, and you have this shadow government that's operating with Obama uh, pulling the strings. I think it's very clear this is happening. You move Valerie Jarrett into his house, uh, and they are orchestrating some of the things that are going on, some of the leaks and these other things happening in the executive government, executive branch. They're doing it from their little home there in Washington, D.C., and people have said, you know, this is unprecedented a president acting behind the scenes to undermine the government. It's not really. Uh, and, 
in one particular example. I think the best example you can find is John Quincy Adams, who left Washington bitter, went back to Massachusetts, was eventually elected to the House of Representatives, and then did everything he could to attack the South. He hated the South because he viewed the South as the reason why he lost the presidency and why his time in, in the executive branch was miserable. So he's going to go after the South continuously during his time as, uh, as a member of the House of Representatives. And that agitation ultimately set, sowed the seeds for uh, war uh, 30 years later. And I think you could say that if this agitation continues and what we have in the United States, you're getting so polarized that uh, this could go uh, poorly for the United States in the future. Uh, but, you know, Obama is the next John Quincy Adams, and that's not a good thing. Uh, Adams uh, was, you can, you can point the finger at Adams as the start of so much of the major problems we had in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s in the United States Congress. And, of course, that spilled over into the states and then all the things that happened there. So Cleveland goes in and he says, I'm, you know, I'm going to clean up government. Uh, as governor of New York, uh, he cleaned up the corruption in New York. As mayor of Buffalo, he cleaned up the corruption in Buffalo. And one thing I loved about Grover Cleveland is that when he would have uh, meetings in his office, he would leave the door open and he would speak as loudly as he could. And people would try to bribe him and, and you know, do things like that. And Cleveland would uh, basically, in a in a very loud voice, almost yelling, say, uh, you know, you're trying to bribe me, and uh, people became you know put off by this. Cleveland was was not uh, one who could be bought, and he thought that he was supposed to be there to do the work that he was that the Constitution designed him to do, and that was defend that Constitution. And if people were coming in trying to bribe him or arrange uh, kickbacks or you know special favors. He thought that was completely unconstitutional and immoral. And so Cleveland was going to uh, you know, let these people know that he wasn't going, to, uh, wasn't going to fall for this, and he wasn't going to have the same type of government that, uh, say, someone like James G. Blaine would have had, uh, who was extremely corrupt. You know, Blaine, uh, they, they uh, pulled this out in the 1884 election. It's one that, you know, I suggested it. Uh, the 2016 election could mirror uh, 1884, also 1896, but 1884 in that Blaine uh, was the most corrupt individual ever nominated by a major party in 1884, only surpassed by Hillary Clinton in 2016. And all Cleveland had to, all, all Trump had to do was run like Cleveland. Look, I'm going to clean up this corruption. I'm going to drain the swamp. This is exactly what he said, and people believed him. It was cleaning up corruption that uh, one of the reasons why a lot of people supported Trump. Now, is he doing it? Not necessarily. I think he needs to uh, focus more on doing that, and perhaps uh, you know, the, the, uh, the situation would improve in Washington. But this is why there's a, a mirror between 1884 and 2016. Also, uh, you know, in 18, uh, 1888, Cleveland won the popular vote, but lost in the Electoral College to Benjamin Harrison. And so there you have 2016 again. Uh, and then, of course, Cleveland comes roaring back in 1892 and wins the election over Benjamin Harrison, though uh, Cleveland never got uh, over 50% of the popular vote. Um, now, Cleveland, um, the, the thing I love most about Grover Cleveland is his use of the veto power, and I'll get to that in a minute. But um, he wasn't a do-nothing president. Oftentimes, you know, we look at this late 19th century period, the Gilded Age, 
And I've talked about the Gilded Age on this podcast, too, and how important it is to understand the Gilded Age. Because the, the presidents of the Gilded Age uh, were not do-nothing presidents. Uh, many of them were interested in defending the oath, but Cleveland just did it better than any of these others. And uh, the Gilded Age, though, set the stage for modern America. And a lot of the issues that we find today, a lot of contemporary issues, you found in the Gilded Age, whether it's monetary policy, Grover Cleveland was dealing with that, whether it's foreign policy, you started having the expansion of the American empire, Grover Cleveland was dealing with that. Uh, So you had these major issues, corruption in government, you had that, trade and tariff policy, you had that. These were major issues in the late 19th century. And so if you go back and look at the late 19th century, you'll find that a lot of the things we're talking about today, they were talking about in the late 19th century. And so I think this is it's why it's important to study that period and understand what was going on, because if we understand the late 19th century, we can understand the early 21st century. And unfortunately, we have uh, a federal government that's expanded well beyond its constitutional uh, parameters. And of course, that has created a situation where we have a national top-down approach to every problem. But if the American public would make it clear that this is not the direction the general government should take, uh, perhaps Congress would do, would do more to curtail the, uh, as I mentioned in the podcast just a few, issue, uh, a few episodes ago, curtail the power of the judicial branch and actually stay within its bounds in the legislative branch. And then the president, as John C. Calhoun pointed out, would become powerless. What happens with the presidency is by Congress giving it all this legislative authority, you know, they pass legislation, the, the president has to implement all these things, it creates massive bureaucracy to do that, the president does come be, come be uh, more powerful. So um, I think it's important to note that the Congress has been complicit in a lot of this stuff, though the president has used signing statements, executive orders, executive agreements, all these things to unconstitutionally expand the office. Okay, so let me talk about a couple of the you know, interesting things that Cleveland said or did as president. Uh, one of the things he said uh, is this idea of a chief legislator, and Cleveland was not, not uh, interested in that. He said this, quote, While the executive may recommend such measures as he shall deem expedient, the responsibility for legislative action must and should rest upon those selected by the people to make their laws. How refreshing is that to have a guy go into office and say, look, I can ask Congress to do things, but if the Congress doesn't do it, it's not my job to do anything. The the Congress has to make the laws. And he also said this, quote, In the discharge of my official duty, I shall endeavor to be guided by a just and unrestrained construction of the Constitution, a careful observance of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the state or to the people, and by a cautious appreciation of those functions which, by the Constitution and laws, have been especially assigned to the executive branch of the government. So, again, he's saying, look, here's separation of powers, not just between the general government, the three branches of the general government, but also between the general government and the states. This is something that no one really talks about anymore. Even this idea of new federalism, uh, which is not really federalism at all. This is a, a brainchild of uh, Richard Nixon and his administration. Anytime you hear that term, we're going to go back to new federalism. You should run for the hills. You should say, my gosh, this is going to be awful, because generally what happens, you get these block grant programs where the general government will give money, that's actually state money anyways, quote-unquote, back to the states, but with all these mandates and strings attached. These are the things you have to do with it. That's not real federalism. That's the general government saying, 
here's the money, here's how you got to spend it. Uh, you have a little leeway in how you do it, but you can't do anything else with it. What should happen is the general government should say, you know what, we're not doing this at all. There's no money. These are things that you can do on your own. We're not going to have any mandates. We're not going to tell you how to spend money or what to spend money on. That's your money. In fact, what we're going to do is lower taxes, and we're going to allow you to do these things in the states. Uh, one thing I found interesting, of course, is that there has been some discussion about states withholding money from the general government, uh, and that was that was California. And, of course, the states should do more of this. Uh, they should say, look, if, if we have all the power, you don't have the power. You're not supreme unless it's constitutional, unless the law is made in pursuance with the Constitution. And most of the legislation that Congress passes is not within that charge. So the Supremacy Clause only has so much weight because if the Congress is doing something that's blatantly unconstitutional, it doesn't apply. Even Alexander Hamilton said this. So I think it's important to understand that the states still have a role and a function, and if they would just use that, if they would grow a backbone, uh, we would have a much different general government. Okay, so uh, several things that Cleveland did that I think were great. First, uh, the tariff. Um, Cleveland was interested in tariff reduction. So here we have a trade issue in the late 19th century, and the Democratic Party platform was uh, often uh, instrumental in reducing the tariff. I mean, this was an old Democratic position to reduce the tariff. Now it's the exact opposite, and what we've got is protection. Now, I can say this. Uh, the free trade agreements that we've had, whether it's NAFTA uh, or GATT, uh, these trade agreements or the Trans-Pacific Agreement, which Trump uh, rightfully tore up, these things aren't really free trade. They are uh, a handout to companies uh, in the name of, uh, disguised by free trade, quote-unquote. Uh, this is just more corporate welfare. It's a way for companies to pad the bottom line and get trade advantages, uh, and um, that's not necessarily free trade. Uh, the government is still involved in these things, and it's not taking the government out of the process. Now, uh, one thing you would get during the uh, Cleveland administration is the Wilson-Gorman tariff, and uh, Cleveland wanted, he actually drafted legislation for tariff reduction. This was uh, uncharacteristically, uh, you know, done by Cleveland. This is really the only time he did it. Um, but uh, the Wilson-Gorman tariff was this Frankenstein bill that got to his desk that lowered the tariff, but uh, it wasn't exactly what Cleveland wanted. Now, so he didn't veto it because the bill was obviously constitutional, but he didn't sign it either. By signing it, that would, that would show his agreement for the bill. So he just let it pass into law. Uh, if it's not constitutional, Cleveland was going to let it go, but uh, he wasn't going to show his support for the bill. And that's that's the proper position to take. Uh, if the bill's not unconstitutional, just don't sign it uh, and show that you support it. Just let it pass into law on its own. But he did veto a Texas seed bill in 1887. And uh, this, is an, this is one thing that Cleveland is often derided for, you know, by, particularly by progressive historians. Oh, my gosh, you vetoed this bill to help farmers. How evil are you? You know, how unjust is that? Uh, you just don't care. You're, you're mean. And uh, Cleveland did this because he didn't agree with any type of government handouts. Corporate welfare is a government handout. So is a handout for, uh, you know, farmers. It's unjustly enriching farmers at the expense of industrialists, just like having a tariff was unjustly enriching industrialists at the expense of farmers. And so he, in his veto message for the Texas Seed Bill of 1887, he, he said this, or wrote this, quote, I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution. 
and I do not believe that the power and duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individuals' suffering, which is in no manner properly related to the public service or benefit. A prevalent tendency to disregard the limited mission of this power and duty should, I think, be steadfastly resisted. To the end, that the lesson should be constantly enforced that though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. End quote. And, he's, and he's saying this across the board. It doesn't matter if it's a poor farmer or a rich steel magnate. I mean, this is, he's saying the government is not here to make people rich. That's the exact opposite of what people think government should do today. I mean, you look at how much uh, money is in Washington, D.C. Uh, for years, uh, my family lived in northern Virginia, and we couldn't even afford to live there now because there's so much money in Washington, D.C. The area in which we lived uh, is now, I mean, the home that uh, my family had there is a little, t- it's not a big home. It was built in the 1950s. Now that home is over a million dollars. I mean, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And uh, this, for for the first time in American history during the Trump administration, during the Obama administration, government employees are making more than private sector employees. So we're enriching people in government. We're enriching companies through corporate welfare. We're enriching uh, all kinds of other people through government handouts. Uh, they may not be rich, but they're getting money. And so the forgotten man, the person in the middle, this is what William Graham Sumner had said back in the late 19th century, that person in the middle is getting squeezed. You have handouts for the top, you have handouts for the bottom, and the people in the middle are paying taxes and they're getting nothing for it. So this is why government handouts are so dangerous uh, and why they should be resisted. Now, I mentioned this veto power, the wrecking ball of the veto, uh, and Cleveland... um, Use the veto more times than any president in American history to that point. Uh, he was only surpassed by Franklin Roosevelt. But what Cleveland was doing with the veto was vastly different than what Roosevelt was doing with the veto. Roosevelt was vetoing re- legislation because he didn't like it, because it wasn't his legislation. Cleveland was issuing vetoes because he was vetoing unconstitutional bills, mostly pension bills, though he did veto other things. He actually uh, vetoed... Um, a bill, for example, that was erecting post roads, I'm sorry, post offices, uh, because he said the power to erect post roads did not mean to build post offices. Uh, and he also vetoed other bills that did all kinds of other uh, things that would have enlarged um, the government, more or less giving land to the U.S. government. But his veto of these pension bills is really interesting. Uh, what happened in uh, the general government in the late 19th century is that you had all these former uh, Civil War soldiers that wanted pensions. In fact, the Congress would set aside one day uh, a week uh, to go over uh, pension bills. And this was just federal welfare is all it was. And so what happened is these congressmen would generally start saying, you know, hey, vote for me and I'll get you your pension. Uh, and so these pensions clogged up a lot of the legislative business. And so <clears throat> Cleveland vetoed about 200 of these things as president. He also let 2,000 go through. But he looked. He, he read every one of these pension bills, and some of these pension bills were so blatantly unconstitutional and, and just corruption that he just had to veto them. You know, one case, uh, a man wanted to get a pension because he had chronic diarrhea, not because he got it during the war. He got this thing, you know, after the war was over, 20 years later. One pensioner, uh, one one proposal for a pension was from a family whose son had died during the war, drowning, trying to escape trying to, uh, you know, get out of the war. Uh, so this guy wasn't serving. He was, he was, uh, he was uh, shirking. He was a deserter. 
And so they, he said, you can't get a pension for a guy that drowned while he was deserting. Uh, that's not going to happen. In one case, a woman wanted to get a pension because her husband fell off a ladder 20 years after the war, and so now he needed a pension. I mean, this is the kind of corruption you had, and this is what you get when you have large-scale government involvement in individual welfare or corporate welfare. So Cleveland vetoed this stuff. It's all corruption. It's all, it, it's all uh, unconstitutional. And, of course, what happened is the Grand Army of the Republic uh, went on the warpath against Cleveland, and they exacted revenge in the 1888 election. Uh, the Grand Army of the Republic uh, was a lobby group for the Republican Party, and they organized all these Union veterans to vote against Cleveland because he's vetoing these pension bills. And so this actually worked against him in 1888, and, uh, but Cleveland was doing the right thing here. He's vetoing these pension bills because they were unconstitutional. Uh, so, you know, Cleveland, I think, should be given credit for that. If we just only had a president today that would sit down and veto all the unconstitutional legislation, uh, we'd be a lot better off. The veto power is supposed to be used in that way. Uh, and this is, again, why, Cal- why Calhoun defended the veto when the Whigs in uh, 1843 tried to abolish the veto power. Uh, because John Tyler, who I've already talked about in this podcast, was vetoing legislation. They couldn't stand it. Uh, so it's important to understand the, the necessity of the veto uh, of, as a tool to arrest unconstitutional legislation. Now, uh, when Cleveland comes back into office in, uh, in 1893, so he's out for one term, comes back in for a second term in 1893, uh, you have a depression. And in so many ways, uh, the response uh, in 1893 uh, was what uh, you know, Warren Harding did in 1921, to avoid, to avoid uh, government involvement in the economy, and then the economy would simply correct itself. It was not good. I mean, the economy was awful, and Cleveland let the economy hit the bottom, so it's going to rebound. But in so many ways, 1893 was a dress rehearsal for 1929. You had high inflation, you had crony state capitalism, and that expansion of credit during the 1880s caused the 1893 Depression. I think of one thing economic historians could do is study that 1893 Depression, and why it happened. There's a lot of parallels between that and 1929. I know a lot of time and effort has been put into 1921, but people should look at 1893. That was a major panic. Uh, and it, in, some, in so many ways, uh, in terms of the depth of the Depression, mirrored 1929. Uh, so Cleveland's response was, hey, look, I'm not going to do anything here. One thing we have to do is repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act and we have to modify the McKinley tariff to try to get government out of the economy to lower taxes and curb inflation. But um, he wasn't, Cleveland wasn't a do-nothing president here. These are things that had to be done to correct the situation. Uh, and, but he was going to take the government out of you know, helping people out or having government programs to uh, you know, save people. Uh, the economy is going to correct itself, and it did. And uh, I think that's something that people should learn from from the uh, Cleveland administration. And finally, in foreign policy, I mean, you look at, uh, you know, his uh, anti-intervention foreign policy. This is the one thing that I think, uh, you know, Trump had an advantage over the other candidates uh, in the 2016 election. He was much more non-interventionist than the other candidates, though, of course, he's got a bunch of neoconservatives running around in his uh, administration now, and all they want to do is go to war with everybody. I mean, we're seeing this again. So we've got a lot of tension in, in Asia. We've got tension with Russia. Uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, tension with, uh, with uh, China. Of course, being Asia, we have tension with North Korea. 
So uh, this, unfortunately, is uh, you know something that uh, the American empire has created. And uh, Trump was a little breath of fresh air. At least he was uh, you know, talking about getting out of the Middle East eventually. At least he was saying uh, that the Iraq war was a mistake. Uh, we shouldn't have been there. Uh, maybe I would have a different kind of foreign policy. Uh, so uh, that's refreshing. And, of course, that's very much Grover Cleveland. You know, Hawaii, there was a coup in Hawaii by American uh, interests there. And Cleveland just uh, uh, opposed uh, American intervention after the coup. Uh, he did not support the pro-American government there, but he couldn't uh, replace um, the queen, Queen Lulu Kalani, because that would have led to bloodshed. Uh, he did modernize the American Navy. He viewed the Navy as essential for protecting American commerce. Uh, but uh, he didn't support, for example, intervention in Cuba, which was already going through a, a um, process by which uh, you know, the Spanish-Cuban governor was cracking down on these rebels, putting, setting up concentration camps. Uh, Cleveland stayed out of that. Of course, the Republicans would not when uh, William McKinley came into office. But Cleveland's position was this is a problem for Cuba, not the United States. So he's very much following the guidelines established by the founding generation. No, quote-unquote, entangling alliances. And I think that's a refreshing departure from what we have today with the imperial presidency and the idea that we need to be involved everywhere around the globe. Again, foreign policy creates domestic policy. Uh, If you have an an aggressive imperialist foreign policy, your domestic policy is going to have the same thing. So what we need out of the executive branch is more Grover Cleveland and less... Uh, you know, modern president. Uh, and I think if we could do that, we would see a much more efficient government, a much more constitutional government. And Grover Cleveland should be our guy, uh, just as John Tyler should be our guy, not any of these presidents of the 20th, 20th century and 21st century. Uh, they should nowhere near be the models by which we measure uh, executive power. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast again. Uh, next week, I will be taking a break. I'm off, so I will see you again on March 21st. So until next time, catch up on all these old Brian McClanahan episodes. Uh, Go out there and and, uh, share this one around, and I'll see you on the 21st. Have a good one.